0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the first Youth Forum of the 2021-2022 school year. I'm Vikram Sundaram, a junior at Sillon High School and a member of the City Club of Cleveland's Youth Forum Council. I'm pleased to introduce today's forum, a conversation on climate change and its impacts. As we head into one of the most consequential decades in American history during such a critical time, it's important to recognize the massive effect that climate change will have on all of us. It's important to discuss this issue both on a national and local level. Studies have shown that climate change will have irreversible damage by 2030, making it all the more important for everyone, from community leaders to citizens, to take action immediately. Climate change will potentially destroy our ecosystem, including Cleveland's own Lake Erie. We need to evaluate our current situation and think of more innovative and efficient ways to move forward. Our panelists today to discuss this include Peter Kraus, a reporter for cleveland.com, Katarina Meyer, a coordinator for Fridays for Future USA, and Divya Sridhar, the manager of climate resiliency and sustainability of Cleveland Neighborhood Progress. And as will all City Club forums, we, we welcome audience questions. You can text your questions to 330 541 5794. That's 330 541 5794. Or tweet them to us at City Club Youth, and we'll try to work them in. Also, this program is not affiliated or endorsed by the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, creators and managers of the Doomsday Clock. We want to thank the keepers of the Doomsday Clock for graciously allowing us to use the title of today's forum. Here to guide our discussion is Youth Forum Council Member Zoe Ellenbogen, a member from Shaker Heights High School. Zoe, I turn the forum over to you.
1: Thank you, Vikram, for that introduction, and I would like to welcome you to the first Youth City Club panel for the 2021-2022 to school year. Let's begin our discussion, and the first question I'd like to start with, we see this all the time in social media, right? But, you know, hearing from people who know a lot about this topic, what are the most effective steps or changes one can make to actually combat or make any impact on climate change? Um, I'll direct this first one to... You, Miss Meyer.
2: Hi, Um, thank you so much for having uh, having me on today. I'm so honored to be part of this and speaking directly to the community and with other people on this panel. Um, So I'm from Fridays for Future. Uh, I am from the US level so I can speak a little bit more to just like general kind of um, systemic things that we see across the country and indeed actually across the world. Um, And then that can kind of then be translated onto the specific Cleveland level. Um, So the perpetual question of what can I do is so important. And so what we often see is that is that kind of disparity between individual action and kind of being like, I need to do my part. And then it also feeling like the little things that I do, like, do they actually make a difference? Like does, does me turning off the light or whatever, and me like worrying about every single little thing that I do and my carbon footprint, right? Does that actually help make the systemic change that we need? Because so often it can feel like I am so concerned about this thing and I am working so hard on it, but does, does what I do actually make a difference, right? Because on the other hand, we see these huge systemic changes that are necessary and it just feels like you're so small in comparison to them. So um, the thing that is found over and over and over again is that individual action is necessary, but not sufficient. Um, and what that means is that I that like every, every action that I do works towards that and is completely necessary. And we cannot reach the changes that we need without them. However, if, just the collective amount of all these individual actions is not going to be enough. So that means I need to speak about it. I need to engage more people. And every little bit that I do outside of the individual actions that I do for myself, those are then what magnify and make the difference. Those are then what lead to from that lead from individual action to collective action, where we do these things together and we become more than the sum of our parts, to societal change, which it is where we need to go to, where we just, it's, it's normal and obvious that we think about the impacts of our of our actions that they have on other people around us or on the environment that we think about the things that are normal in our society and we're like should they be this way like do we really want these things to be this way why don't we build the world the way that we want to and not the way that it's just kind of come out of this collective history um and so I think to kind of round it out because that was a really long answer is to say that individual action is completely necessary and keep going, but the weight, of the climate crisis and what we're in right now should not be resting on any individual's shoulders. It is not the individual's fault. And it is by design that you are made to feel like the entire pressure of this crisis is on you. Know that it is not. Reach out, become part of a community, find people around you that feel the same way, figure out what you can do in your part, and then just amplify whatever it is that you do and motivate others to do whatever it is that they want to do and can do in their individual, um, in their individual
3: What a great start, Kat! Um, I I think that was a very inspiring start for all of us to hear. Um, But I I want to take that to and emphasize one more one point there that you made that it is not supposed to rest on us. It's not supposed to rest on the individual. Systems change is what you need right now. Your awareness of where you are and having this conversation at multiple points to elevate this conversation so that when you learn something, when you do something, you're doing that through the informed lens and you're sharing that informed um, learning to somebody else. Um, so when th- what that looks like When you're writing a letter to someone who's in a position of power, you're making some of those statements come through. Um, And when you are um, sitting in a community meeting, we're thinking about that bridge to make that systems change. You're voicing what you see at your level to make it heard, whether it's at your municipal government level or it's your next stage, make sure that that gets heard so that what you need to see happen is a policy shift That really needs to resonate, so that mandate at some point becomes a cultural shift, cultural um, cultural thing. It only happens when you keep beating at it and make some of those changes, make those policy changes accessible, but actually make them happen, make them sort and and enforce some of those policy decisions. So I think some of those steps. You, I'll 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 leave it at that because I think Kat summed it up pretty well. But I just want to make sure that we make we see. Um, that your words come through, your actions come through um, at, you know, making the um, the politicians um, and your municipal entities um, at whatever levels, municipal and your state entities sort of um, um, enforce some of these things.
4: I would agree very much. I would just add to that maybe some specifics uh, of what an individual could do. Um, you know, you can, you can change your commuting habits. You know, you could, you could make less uh, uh, trips in your car. You could, you can carpool, you can ride your bike more. Um, you can uh, reuse things as opposed to uh, especially plastics, as opposed to buying things uh, that are uh, uh, disposable. Uh, plastics are made with petroleum products. Uh, petroleum has to be refined and, and, You know, it's it's that contributes to, uh, you know, the creation of greenhouse gases. These are all things that you can do on an individual basis, with your actions. But you can also let your your uh, elected officials know, uh, locally, statewide, and federal. You know how you feel about the need uh, to uh, address climate change, and then on a on a more macro level, obviously, I think, and I'm again, I'm not an expert, but a huge contributor to to uh, climate change and, and the warming of the atmosphere is our uh, burning of uh, fossil fuels. And there's a huge push towards renewables right now. The Biden administration wants to make it, uh, uh, you know, wants to codify it. Uh, it's unclear whether that's gonna happen. There's some kickback from, uh, in, in particular from uh, the Senator from West Virginia, which is a big coal state, but there's also kickback here in Ohio which is a which is a coal state uh, so there's things you can do a- actions individually there's also making your voice heard on things like uh, uh, renewable energy uh, other aspects that could affect um, climate change global warming in particular
2: And I think if I can chime in there real um, quick I think one of the really important, Parts about, um, getting having your voice heard, especially as you were just talking about all the, like the push for renewables and the infrastructure bill and all these things that we're seeing right now, um, is that it is so hard for an individual who is not steeped in this to kind of know what are, like, what are truths and what's, like, I had to use the word propaganda, but what are the things that industry or or want you to believe, for instance, right now, the big push to include carbon sequestration and so many things where um, carbon sequestration and like hydrogen and all these wonderful sounding new technologies, right? They're being used to be able to say, hey, look, we can continue uh, like life just the way that we that we know. We continue business as usual. We'll sprinkle some magic fairy dust over it. Like we'll figure out carbon sequestration. We'll suck the carbon right out of the air. We'll put it into the ground. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out how it doesn't blow up the earth while we do that, right? Like, we'll make hydrogen and that'll just like suddenly not have any, we can use so much more energy and not have to admit any of the carbon, right? But how we make that hydrogen, don't ask us that because that's using fossil fuels, right? So there's so many things behind these, like all these different things that you hear, um, whereas then Absolutely correctly, we've got the scientists and the activists and all these people coming out and debunking these things that industry that industry is putting out there as solutions, right? But then as the individual, you're like, so what am I supposed to believe? I don't have time to sit here and read all the scientific magazines, become a scientist, and then like know suddenly, like what is the difference between blue hydrogen and green hydrogen and brown hydrogen, and how do I know which one that I am I, I'm actually getting, right? So there's so much more behind this that means that always leads back to that need for systemic change and for people uh, putting out and being like, hey, I want the right thing. And I'm expecting that the people who are in positions that are either paid to or elected to be in these positions, need to be able to trust you because not everyone is supposed to be, not everyone is supposed to or in our society has the capacity to figure out what is the truth behind these things and what is actually what we need as a society. So it's kind of a log, just like as you're, as you are getting your voice out there, which you completely should, just kind of make sure that you take the time to fact check, but then also always add in and know that you don't have to know all this. Always know the caveat, always know to ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions and demand that people who are putting out there who are either from industry or their city uh, uh, or town, any kind of leaders, be like, did you do the research? Do you know what you're talking about? And who's feeding you this? Right, like, is it some kind of industry person who's whispering this in this politician's ear? Right, just like, kind of know that there's broader questions to ask behind it, um, and that it is fully okay for you not to have all the answers. And that's so important that education and just like general norm um, norm shifts to fact checking things um, also become like as we shift towards um, the you know battling the climate crisis, that we also um, take a step towards uh, towards trust and fact checking as just like the basis of society, science,
3: and truth. Great point, because you never know where things are coming from. Um, one, one, one more thing that I just wanted to throw into this mix of how we um, how we are talking about in the things of what can I do. Um, 70% of most of our emissions really come from our consumer goods, manufacturing, and distribution. What can I do is a, and is, For us to be able to realize what that means in our consumption pattern in our everyday life. They make it 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 is all super fuzzy right now as to how supply chain really it's becoming very clear right now for everybody right now that supply chain disruptions are happening everywhere. You know, you're going to wait for a really long time for your Christmas gifts to come Um, and. How can you begin to think about localizing your Christmas gift, or can it be something else? Can it be something else than a material thing. Can it be a um, experience that you you know have in exchange? Can it be something that you're thinking about consuming or you know procuring locally, as opposed to waiting for something that's coming from um, a place in China where they have no po- where they have no power right now in the East China and. You know the stresses are caused because of that the rerouting that happens because of something like that there is hidden embodied carbon in everything that we do right so being um aware of that learning how to consume less because it's important for us to both consume less and to find alternate ways of manufacturing some of these things both these things together is what's going to take us there so i think um Think about that when when we pick up something what do we want do we need this because everything bright and shiny is the thing that you don't a lot of things bright and shiny are things you don't really want that's why they're bright and shiny and sitting on the front shelf right so um think about where your money is put your money where your mouth is um
4: and and i would just add real quickly you know we think well we'll just buy something that's in a plastic package and well we'll just recycle it but that'll that will solve the problem well we, we're not. We'll never recycle our way out of our out of our waste problems. I mean, it, it helps. It's part of the equation. Recycling, if when done right, is it, a very positive thing. But the the waste stream is so huge that there has to be uh, a, a change in behavior uh, that uh, where, where where we consume less or we consume in different in, in different uh, with different packaging or, or different forms. You know, the the one thing that I found really dismaying and and which kind of has come to light in in recent years is, is the whole idea of recycling. And it's, I think it's, I I, I may be wrong on this, but it, but the the whole notion of recycling to the plastic industry was a way for them to ensure that they could continue to make plastics. It's like, Oh, well, Oh yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I can continue to consume plastic because recycling is going to solve the problem. Well, it, it, it doesn't. There, it, it, as I think Debbie was saying, and Kat, you know, there has to be a change in, in 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 behavior, a change in the way we manufacture. But that is such a huge change in in, in our society, and it affects so much, so many things, jobs, employment. It's not an easy uh, question to resolve. But ultimately, it's going to have to be, I think, if we're going to truly address these these issues of climate change that we that we're that that we're discussing
2: yeah just maybe throw in there not to continue the conversation but to anybody who wants to dive deeper into this right like look at how much percentage of uh, all the plastics that gets brought to recycling centers actually gets recycled. I think in the U S we recycle about 9% of all of our plastics. That's 9%. That's like a one digit number. Right. And then look to see where the rest of the plastic lands, look to see where the ships of, of plastics, take it to, to other countries who kind of count on the money and who are now where there's entire islands where the people are just like overrun with plastics. So I think that that would be a really good place to anybody who's a little bit and more interested in seeing, um, behind the scenes on this, there's a lot to dig in and a lot, has come to light light lately, as
1: Peter was saying. Thank you for all those answers. That was really interesting to hear. Um, The next question, shifting to kind of a COVID perspective, if you will, have you noticed a change in trajectory or public perception or even just government or politician perception uh, with COVID and how has that affected kind of what action is being taken about climate change slash what people believe about climate change? Anyone can jump in for this one. Well, I'll start
3: off with some low hanging visible stuff, right? I mean, you think about um, pollution, air pollution, and you see where there is um, spikes in air pollution. New York Times um, um, late last year shared a story on um, where are the places where you have um, climate change? I mean, um, um, air pollution. What is the susceptibility of those um, of residents in those regions? you know, um, uh, getting impacted by COVID and other respiratory, um, you know, illnesses, the impacts higher. I mean, definitely it's closer. So um, to there is definitely correlations there that we can see are, um, are, do we see a big shift? I think during the time where we didn't travel very much, where we hunkered down, where we had, uh, you know, quarantines in place, When remote work was still a big part of our lives or was possibly the most, um, for those who are privileged, who could have, um, you know, remote work. Um, And those, I think we did see a big drop in our transportation emissions. We did see a drop in um, some of that. But those things quickly pick back up. Um, I don't think we have systems in place that allow us to, um, you know, capture some of this memory and make policies out of that. We are not ready to do make some of those things. And humans also, um, very cynically, we do have um, a shorter memory span. We want to do what's most convenient to us um, beyond all else. So we are going to um, kick back some of our habits that we learned. Um, and I, I think I'm one of those people that's saying that, yes, we have a long way to go. Uh, maybe we haven't learned very much. Uh, but there is tremendous opportunity for us at this point to capture some of that um, as we begin to think about it. What does telework look like? And in the presence of telework, what does transportation look like for us? What does real estate infrastructure look like when it comes to turning on lights, turning off lights? How do those buildings work as um sheltering spaces for the unsheltered. Um, There are many things that we can learn about the goodness of people that shifted some of those things for a small period of time um, that we tend to forget easily. Um, And in whole, I'm going to say that we haven't captured that essence very well to make longer term um, or to even think about longer term changes from those learnings.
4: Yeah, I I don't think uh I mean, I mean the pandemic really hasn't changed the fundamental concerns that we have about um climate change. Uh it it, it has changed our, our behaviors in ways that maybe could reduce some of our uh carbon footprint in particular uh the the remote work, but we're also finding that there's uh you know w- when we do that we create other problems not necessarily environmental problems but problems of socialization and so on and so forth i think there's there's we we are so far from from settling all of these things you know our our society has we've we have not settled out of of the pandemic by any means we don't know where we're going to land in terms of of remote work and um and how you know concerns about the pandemics to affect say the use of public transportation um uh you know the, the demand for electricity all these kinds of things we're we're really uh searching right now uh for for some of these answers um but uh but clearly um we may not have to rely as much on transportation um in the future but at the same time uh, from a business standpoint but from a pleasure standpoint i think we're finding with the rebound of the airlines, at least from the tourism standpoint, uh, people are still going to want to get around uh, this country and uh, we're going to have to make sure we do that in, in as, uh, uh, as efficient a way as possible, uh, you know, being, being aware of the carbon footprint that's involved.
2: Yeah, and if I can just chime in on this one, I'll make my answer quick, I promise, Um, is that I think what COVID did was um, reveal the systemic effects like inequalities even more and just exacerbate them. We kind of knew that they were there before, but kind of seeing also how they all intersect and how we kind of can't, we have to move away from that silo thinking that we've been having where it's like um, homelessness and and like uh, healthcare and um, pollution and climate change are all in these like separate buckets, but actually they all work together um, and, and in both positive and negative ways. And that we kind of on the one hand have to tackle all of this at once, which feels like a so much bigger thing. But on the other hand, where it's like we can solve a lot of this and make society so much better for more people um, by tackling all these things together um, in, w- in one big go instead of everyone trying to reinvent the wheel in their own little silo and, and just like not getting very far because we all have to work together on this thing instead of everybody trying to figure it out on their own so i think that's kind of like one of the really the really big things and then just kind of to touch back onto the carbon um uh, question because there's that little difference between just like systemic change and how we live but then also the carbon question um, or carbon equivalence and what we saw is that you know whenever Everyone was home. We were like, oh, my goodness, like there's all these places like nature is coming back. It's going to be awesome. We're going to have so little carbon emissions this year. It's going to be great. And then we saw that our carbon emissions actually went up this year. We were like, what? Um, And so that is just the effect. And now we lived like like legacy carbon. Right. Knowing that just because even if we stop everything that we do today, we go fully renewable tomorrow. Right. We're still going to have all these insane effects because the carbon doesn't just disappear. It takes time to cycle through. where <laughs> It was because we've disrupted all of these processes about where carbon in itself is not a bad thing. It's just that we put it. We put it into the air, taking it out of its natural places in the soil and in um, and in the ground and all these different kind of formations that um, it's going to take a long time for, for the earth to be able to heal itself. So. Um, any kind of talk about 2030, 2050, we need to know that that is just to just to get away from the worst effects of, of all this that we're doing.
1: Um, and then our first uh, panelist question, um, specifically for you, Ms. Schreider, could you tell us a little bit more about what the Cleveland Neighborhood Progress Climate Resiliency Initiative is and what what your work is with that? Yeah,
3: so this initiative really launched in 2016 um, as an um, and was built on a project called the Reimagining a Sustainable Cleveland, which was really trying to see how much land we had around here in Cleveland and seeing how can that land work as a way for residents to imagine a new Cleveland. Um, and then building on that, how does that land sovereignty access to land allow you to think about um, those connections to climate change. Um, so some of the things that you know we learned from there came out. We did a um, research project out of that. Came out a vulnerability study. Um, which are the target neighborhoods that have had um, systemic disinvestments in the city of Cleveland and what are those impacts that they see that will be exacerbated by climate change in those particular neighborhoods. And um, in, in, that, uh, in that project, um, what, what came out was identifying um, a few neighborhood leaders in some of these neighborhoods who will um, learn a little bit more about climate change and go back into their communities and share that information and also co-design with their residents what some of those projects could be that would be decentralized solutions not directly as impacting climate change but solve for some of those symptoms that you see Um, food insecurity could you have more community gardens in place and to bolster those community gardens could you have like a closed-loop system like a composting um, that can come out from these kind of processes Um, you realize that you need to have um, trees Planted in order for us to com- combat our urban heat island. Um, so thinking about um, where we plant our trees first, do we plant them everywhere? You know that edge. You know some neighborhoods in Cleveland have a healthy tree canopy at forty percent. Some neighborhoods have two percent to five percent. Um, how do we begin to think about? Which neighborhoods to prioritize based on the uh, residents who've been disproportionately impacted by some of these things. Um, and then, um, also coming out of that, is um, what are some uh, part of climate change is. While we're addressing some of these things, like Kat mentioned, breaking some of those silos. We've been working in our silos, working on things that we are passionate about and things that we are um, forced to drive things around uh, for a long time. Can some of these, can we create a, Web of people that know each other have trust in each other in order to um, build a sort of a network when it comes time. Um, so, when you have to do emergency response, then you have a network of people set in place who have the trust of their community so you can build that. Um, we did through this project distribute, um, you know, some um, early on PPE, hand sanitizers, um, some. Um, flashlights um, and other things that you need to keep when you have um, electrolytes, um, some dry canned food, things that you need to keep in emergency through this project. We just heard from some of those residents that received those um, emergency packets when COVID first hit that those things were useful to get them Um, running up and running uh, before some of those things were accessible to people. Um, So that really allowed us to understand where where some of the things were looking at learning to at that point, beginning to look at data, looking at our vulnerability studies. We are looking at climate smart maps, using that as a basis to launch into what green space should look like. That project almost started off for us as a way to start having a more cohesive conversation around um, the symptoms and climate change. Um, I can talk about this in detail with anybody else who would like to learn a little bit more, even offline. I'll drop my email in there to um, so you can reach out to me. But um, I'll open. I'll share this. I'll I'll turn this back to um, the moderator.
1: Thank you, and I will turn it right over to our mid forum speaker, Aparna. Take it away.
0: i'm a junior and a member of the youth forum council today we are enjoying a youth forum panel discussing the effects of the climate crisis on cleveland and the impact of regional environmental policy our panelists today are divya sridhar kat mayer and peter kraus and our moderator today youth forum council member zoe Bogan. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our webcast. We ask that your questions be brief, to the point, and actual questions, please. So please text your questions to 330-541-5794. That's 330-514-5794. Or tweet your questions to at City Club Youth, and we'll work them in. Today's forum is also sponsored by AT&T with additional support from the Doris C. Michael Ski Trust. We thank you for your support. With that first question, please. All
1: right. First question. Um, this one is for Mr. Kraus. Could you describe the state of what climate reporting is like these days um, in terms of some of it seems really kind of alarmist? um some of it seems surprisingly not um for where we are right now so just touch on
4: that sure uh first of all i've i've been the environmental reporter for cleveland.com and the plane dealer for only two or three months it was a uh uh, a beat that we used to have and we kind of got away from because uh well we've had a lot of pressures on us in terms of you know uh uh the size of our news staff and so forth but we were hearing so much from the public that they wanted to they wanted more news about the environment that uh we created the uh recreated the beat a uh, uh, couple months ago and i was assigned to uh to take that on so i've only been covering it as an environmental reporter for a, a few months but I've, I've covered many environmental stories over the years in, in my other capacities as a reporter so um I, i'm not going to say i jumped i've jumped into it uh, new i in fact back in 2008 i used to write a column called green ink uh that was uh it was about the sustainability movement in cleveland and this was over a decade ago and yes there was a sustainability movement here and there was a group called uh e4s entrepreneurs for sustainability that were kind of ahead of the game ahead of the curve they had a lot of ideas and they weren't necessarily uh Embraced, I would say, you know, uh, by the mainstream. But anyway, as far as the the uh, the, the nature of, of the reporting, uh, just like with anything, you've got responsible reporting and irresponsible reporting. You've got alarmist reporting, and you've got re- reporting that downplays the seriousness of an issue. I, all I can say is speak for myself and say that that um, uh, I I try to be as as accurate and 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 as objective. Uh, as I can be in my reporting, obviously, I have, you know, my own biases, my own ideas as to what, um, you know, the seriousness of the problem. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that there's, you know, that climate change is is, is a real thing and it needs to be reported. Um, uh, but uh, as far as as uh, b- being alarmist and not, you know, yeah, that's you don't want to be you want to you want to tell it as you understand it as best you can and uh and 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 educate uh not necessarily advocate but educate and and uh you know does that happen uh of course not there's a lot of reporting that's that's over the top but again there's a lot of reporting that's just misinformation misleading downplaying and um you know obviously there's uh there's there's an in the middle there that needs to be found Uh, But you don't want you don't want to be so in the middle that you just water things down. You want to you want to speak to the science and speak to the truth as it's as it's as it's understood by by uh, by science and um, and not be dissuaded by uh, folks with other agendas.
1: Thank you for your response. Uh, Next audience question. This is just a general one for anyone to jump in. Do you think the US is doing enough to prepare for the inevitable, excuse me, effects of climate change?
2: I can jump in here. no, <laughs> full stop. Um, I don't think, first, I don't think that there's any country that is, but at least um, as pertains to the US and especially with its, um, oftentimes it's, it's, uh, Outsized role, um, for one on the global stage, especially with President Biden when he came out, um, back, uh, when he was elected, and he was like, We are back, the U.S. is back, and we're going to take up our, our role, um, and like leading the fight on climate change. And what has happened since then, right? Like, other than signing onto the Paris Agreement, which is literally just symbolic, um, and then stopping one single pipeline, like, what is there? Yeah, elect trying say that well, we want to electrify the grid and, and moving to like electrify buses that's great, that is like one little thing. Thing that we need to be doing and that is awesome but that does not like what a climate president and that definitely does not lead to systemic change we're not saying um or i'm not saying that like president biden is here to solve everything and everything needs to be on him right but it's just the the, the changes that need to be enacted uh to, to lead to that systemic change that we've been talking about the whole time and about how individual action can become so relevant and important and make the difference that we need all of this is through working together. And so, um, and, and that goes from, you know just us doing our individual actions up until to things like President Biden actually pulling through with the promises because only through those kind of systemic big structure things are we able to function because we as individuals can only make our decisions within the, the system that, that, we, that we live in. So um, the answer in my opinion is no.
3: i don't think there's anybody in in our group here that's going to uh refute that at all Kat. um 100% it's a no i think that is a long way for us to go um you know starting starting with how we have this conversation around climate change at the local level, at our schools level, um, you know, trying to um, steep some of our um, information that we share and we get in um, in data in more informed ways to sort of make those um, conversations. I think um, right now we see um, a big gap between those who agree and. Uh, It's still a question of those who agree and who do not. I mean, we should not be in this place. And once we move from that place is when we can significantly make that change. I think there is a lot of investment that needs to happen on um, starting with education all the way until making those really hard hard, um, infrastructure changes, hard mandates that we need to sign on to um, without having to always have to think about what is my incentive. Um, what is the incentive to make that change? The incentive to make that change is so that as an ecosystem, we are functioning well, not just as humans. Um, we know that it's important for us to sort of um, um, think about how that, um, how, how we all interact with each other. So short answer, no,
1: long way to go. Thank you. Um, another uh, audience question for Mr. Kraus. I'm a student interested in environmental reporting. How should I start?
4: uh well do you have a, a, a student newspaper are you are you writing for your student newspaper are you talking to your uh, school for instance to see what kind of uh, uh, policies they have as it relates to um, reuse recycling uh, that kind of thing um, uh, it, it's it's kind of like any form of journalism. You jump in and you start writing. You you you, uh, you you use your curious mind to ask questions, and you uh, and then you follow through. You know, and and if you and if you get stuck, you press on. Um, uh, uh, I suppose if you're if you're a high school student, I suppose if you want to be an environmental reporter, um, and you want and you're going to go off to college, um, I would study environmental science. uh uh, i would study uh economics because economics is going to play as much a role in in how we come out of this as anything um frankly i wouldn't necessarily study journalism i mean that's kind of anathema but i never i didn't take any journalism courses but so many of my fellow journalists did and they're terrific journalists so i'm not going to say don't do that but but educate yourself uh ask questions and then every chance you get to write whether it's for your school newspaper. Or maybe it's for uh, as a special uh, uh, submission to your to your local paper. Uh, do it, and uh, and I'm all, I'm kind of old school, but you know, blog, create your own website, uh, contribute to other people's websites. You know, uh, b- become a com- be, become a commenter in a in a in a in a responsible way. Um, there's a there's a myriad ways to get into it. Uh, You just got to decide that's what you want to do and and figure out a way.
1: Thank you. All right. Next question is more of a general question for anyone to jump in on. A single tree can store about 0.6 metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent over its lifetime. A typical residential solar array offsets 127 metric tons CO2 over its life and saves two times the cost of installing it. Why aren't we installing solar atop every home developed in our communities? And again, just anyone can jump in for this one.
3: I don't think Ohio is set up for this right now. Um, If you're talking about that, we are definitely not set up for this kind of transition. Um, You have a... um, state rule and then you have a home rule you have a you know when um we do not have our energy systems are not set up for um, some of this um i'm going to give you a very generalized answer uh, i'm not I, I do not have too much of an expertise but coming from where we sit as um, working with developers um we do see the challenge in the upfront um you know costs which are definitely you know reducing a lot um it is Where we need to make that case, our education is still not there, but we are not able to do this right now because a lot rests with our, um, you know, our policies. Once those policies change, I think in Northeast Ohio, we are pretty well aware and ready to sort of make some of these shifts. Um, It's also important for us to understand when we can, when we talk about um, installing i see the question is home developed in the community so in newer homes it's much easier to make that um, transition and we need to start including that in our um you know uh handbooks about um, um in planning um but in older homes we still have a lot of trouble with stabilizing roofs with step making sure that when we impose some of these things that we are fair to people who have access who do not have access um so I, I think we still we have a long way to go in this. Um- but the conversations are happening. If not rooftop solar array, are we getting ready to do community solar, which is one of the easiest things to do, especially when we have lots of public buildings, buildings with big roofs? Um, and how do we get uh, some of our local policies to change in order for us to get that started while we start to think about um, rooftop solar? So great question. Keep asking that because I think utility companies, too, um, really need to hear that. You saw what happened at First Energy um, in um, the uh, 60 million scandal that 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 set us back quite a bit on our path to making some of these transitions happen.
2: And if I can just chime in on top of that real quick and just plus one to everything Divya said, um, is to once like, This leads back to asking questions and and taking um, and kind of figuring out what can I do in my situation. So like, for instance, I just I live in an apartment in a condo. I can't put solar on top of my roof. So I was looking into like community solar and figuring out how I can get um, my utility company or if there's a different utility company that I can switch to um, to get renewable energy. And I found out there's these and it's actually a lot harder. And that, for instance, my utility company isn't even allowed to come to me to say, would you like to have renewable energy? Because there's these things called preemption bills um, that are lobbied for by fossil fuel industry uh, that stop utilities from being the ones to proactively offer you and be the ones to then go out and be like, hey, we want to develop renewable alternatives, right? And then a lot of times, like the really big utility companies are then part of that lobbying. So they're basically using your rates that you pay to lobby to keep it away from what it is that you want. And so just kind of really questioning where, like where are decisions made? Why can I like why can I not just do this thing or that thing, right? Um, And so it's kind of looking in to see where across the spectrum, the actual power really lies. Is it city council? Is it industry? Is it my state representative? Is it my mayor, right? Is it actually somewhere really up high that I can't reach? Or is it actually somebody right here in my community um, that I did not even realize where the power lies? So kind of looking into seeing that connecting with people um, and just talking about people who have been active in various parts of your community is going to lead to a lot.
4: And I'll i add real quickly. Some localities are very progressive in the in these uh, in these ways. The city of Cleveland uh, is, is doing a lot to try to uh, promote um, uh, green energy and green ways of doing things. They want to put this uh, wind farm out in the lake as a demonstration project. Uh, that's Leadco; it's a nonprofit, but the city of Cleveland supports it. Cuyahoga County's done a lot to support uh, distributive uh, energy. You know, uh, solar panels on roofs and uh community gardens and all these other kinds of things where you don't see that same kind of mindset is at the state government Ohio, uh, you know it's it's a pretty conservative bunch down there and they put in a lot of roadblocks to wind energy in the state and and to solar energy and um uh and until that changes ohio's going to be is going to be behind the curve or continue to be behind the curve with a lot of other states and this could not only mean uh less renewable energy in the future but also uh fewer jobs that are associated with it.
1: Thank you. Um, We have an additional question that actually flows in quite nicely in terms of uh, methods. Uh, The question is, Cleveland has a lot of potential for green energy. What's your take on green energy methods that still use old harmful technology to create green options, such as the waste created by making electric cars? This is just a general question for anyone to jump in on.
4: Could you repeat that? Are you saying that uh, that you, you've got the positive in a green car, in a, an electric car, but you got a negative in that you have to produce electricity to power that green car?
1: Um, I believe so, yes. Such as the waste created by making electric cars. So I believe they're talking about the battery waste that comes from making the electric car, weighing that with the Benefit of it being an electric car, just in terms of is that actually a beneficial technology, in terms of helping climate change?
4: I. I don't. I don't. I mean, I'm not an expert, but obviously there's there's uh, you know there's a lot there's a lot of technology that still needs to be worked out. Um. Uh. And battery storage is it would be if we can do more with battery storage, not only does that help electric cars, but it would help with uh, wind power and and uh, all manner of of uh, relying on renewable energy as a as a, uh, a staple of your energy supply. You know that's one of the big big hits on renewable energy is that well uh, you, you can't rely on it twenty four seven. Well, if you had really su- really good battery storage, you 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 could. And I think that technology is getting to that point where it's much much more reliable. But uh, but I'm not an expert
3: on that. Not an expert, but I'm just going to jump in and say that when we make some of those, there's there's different levels. First, we um, old, old methods are are still yes, we are still mining them in places where we don't see them, and um, you know, so we we're just transferring our burdens someplace else. Um, there is ways. Battery development has come a long way. People are looking at batteries to, um, you know, uh, create less ones that hold power for uh, hold your, um, you know, can go for a long distances, but use um, different mechanisms. I think we are going to see shifts in that a lot. Um, I think we that's where we need to. We we, uh, it's not about it's about investing in our um, coming generations as we sort of begin to think about how. We think through science, how we think through culturally people have moved, integrating some of the past that we've learned, um, traditional knowledge to some of the um, new use cases that we are beginning to see so that we bridge that gap is going to be extremely essential. And I think our younger generation is seeing those things pretty well, the silos bridging those things. So I think it's creative thinking of how um, how we are thinking about scientific solutions. Um, and the other thing I, I do want to say is just for... Ba- Batteries now are, we, we generate a lot of waste, not in just batteries, but in the whole, whole thing that goes to waste, right? We um, very easily scrap our things. But if we begin to start to think about how we can use our old existing batteries to st- become battery packs, when we are transitioning to a renewable source, then we are, you know, you, you're, you're extending the life at least of something that's harmful. So you're, you're giving it more use. So I think we need to start thinking about those kinds of strategies as well, in addition to just making new solutions. How do we extend the life of things that are already there, bring it to its maximum use? We might need to rethink about in different areas of use, but just beginning to think about that uh, across the um, sectors is also helpful for us.
2: I just chime in adding that the companies who produce things are required to then figure out how to take them back, what to do with them, how to it away and make it go away, and then it lands on someone else's shores, right? But like, if if they were um, required to take back their products and, and, and make sure that they're disposed of correctly, then I think we would see a really large shift in how products are even made in the first place.
3: So I just want to add to that point that um, Cleveland's been working on a project called Circular Cleveland, which is really trying to tackle some of these concepts, building on the recycling um, debacle that we've had and sort of looking at shifting markets and trying to see how those shifting markets here with materials can serve as their own little microcosm of uh, markets. Or how do we use this platform of what Kat just talked about Um changing how manufacturers manufacture things. In Europe, there's something called a white goods law where manufacturers are forced to extend the life of their products. If your uh, washing machine breaks down, you should not have to salvage two or three parts and then throw the entire thing away in a landfill. It should be designed for each of those parts to be replaced so that your $2 nut and bolt is not causing a heat element to break down that's causing the entire thing to not function. You should be able to replace all those small parts. It is, again, imperative. Um, it rests on all of us to sort of ask some of these questions to our manufacturers, put pressure on policy in order for us to make some of those shifts happen. Um, so I'm going to drop a link to that Circular Cleveland initiative as well um, to see how different sectors are coming together. Are Or we're hoping for different sectors to come together to Solve for some of these issues, at least those that exist in Cleveland in the Northeast Ohio region.
4: Yeah, that's, that is an interesting initiative that circular economy, the idea that somebody's waste can be somebody else's fuel, and rather than taking that waste and just disposing of it, if a way can be found to reuse it, then you, you, in in an industrial setting, you can get a circular uh, thing going, but you know that that takes effort that takes time and and from a consumer standpoint to change the best way to change behaviors is is to uh is to you know respond with your pocketbook you know if people start demanding products that have uh uh a, a reuse or a, or a or a plan for reusing and one that's verifiable and not just some kind of greenwashing by a corporation who wants to you know tell everybody how uh green they are and 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 they're really not following through um i mean that's that's kind of the way america gets things done you know we're such a consumer-oriented society we're so we're so bent on our 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 uh our liberties and everything that if if we start acting if people start acting on 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 their own um it's going to force these businesses to change
3: and, you know, to make any of these transitions, if I might add on to your point, Peter, because um, it's important for us to understand where we are in order for us to do some of these things. So I think beginning to document everything, get data around all these things so we can make those informed decisions so that solutions are informed, so we can see that interconnectivity. Because we are, in fact, such a consumer driven industry, but we are also replicating a lot of these efforts. We are replicating products and their uses. We want a single use for one thing, which could actually serve five different uses. How do we sort of begin to categorize all those things, increase our own um, resilience in the face of everything that's thrown at us, creating our own resource capacity? Um, it really requires a mind shift. Um so I'm just I'm just gonna encourage all of us to think about that um
1: as we move through this. Thank you. Um our next question touches on methane gas production. If individuals reduce food waste and compost, will this have a positive impact on climate change? This is just a general question for anyone to jump in on.
4: I'm going to take a guess and say it may, on a very marginal uh, basis. I can't believe, though, that food waste uh, rises to the level of uh, of uh, greenhouse gas uh, creation or emissions that, relative to uh, you know, burning fossil fuels or or deforestation or, or things like that. I mean, every little bit helps, but. Um, I'd be surprised if that's, if, you know, um, it, it, one thing that, that food waste, though, and reducing food waste is good for is it, is it keeps it out of the uh, uh, landfill. And, uh, and where you may not get methane production, you also will preserve the life of your landfill, which is also important.
2: Yeah. And I think it would have an outsized impact, not directly in like the methane um, kind of gas production, but coming back to those things that we've been reiterating this whole time about the systemic shifts and just the norms, right? Just like why do we waste so much food if we don't have so much food waste, right? Then it's going to other people who need the food a lot more than we do, right? Why is it okay in our society for us to throw away so much food? This is literally what keeps us alive. There are so many other people out there who need it so much more. Why does it get shipped all the way from the countries who need it the most to the country where we need it the least, right? And it's like, why is it that we don't just produce the food that we need here? Why have we built our society this way, right? So I think um, kind of addressing, the the issue of food inequality um, um, through kind of figure, like looking at food waste would have an outsized impact on all of those kind of intersectional problems that we've been talking about, and an outsized impact more than, for instance, uh, just looking at the, the methane production or or just like how much it costs in for money and also carbon to ship all these things across the country. Like, look at where your tomatoes come from and how many times they've been across the world. Um, so I do think that there's multiple aspects to it, why it's really important for us to look at food. Um, but I do think that the methane production behind food um, is probably not the most fundamental aspect to look at this issue.
4: But buying local, though, is something that uh, I think Helps in every way. Uh, helps the farmers. Helps the, uh, the the reduces the carbon footprint. Um, you have less packaging. Um, uh, uh, you know who says we have to eat strawberries? You know every month of the year. We we should probably gear our uh, our food our food uh, our, our food consumption to a more seasonal uh, rhythm, and uh, that might make a big difference.
1: Thank you. All right. And then uh, one last question to finish us out. Um, Cleveland has had a bad reputation for its climate woes in the past, like when the Cuyahoga River caught on fire, but we've made some great strides. What are some examples of the more progressive changes you've seen, either locally or nationally?
4: Well, the Cuyahoga River, for one, is a lot cleaner than it was uh, and, uh, they've actually found some, uh, some, uh, walleye in, in, uh, in the, in, in the river, uh, still has a long way to go, still a big silt problems, you know, there's still a uh, discharge into the river from, uh, uh, cons- uh, combined sewer overflows, but, uh, the Cuyahoga river, uh, is, uh, uh, it's still in, considered an impaired river, but there's been, there's been significant improvement made there.
3: I'll second that, and I will also add to. Uh, I'll, I'll say that we have in the last um, since our river burned, and in over the last um, you know decade or so, we have a good, um, good-looking climate action plan that details out several things that we can actually do, both at um, private sector level and as you know as residents. Um, that we can do. How we do that is important. Making sure that we are able to, um, we have policies in place that actually reflect to the, you know, uh, possibilities of that climate action plan is, I think that comes down to um, a lot of local level things. Um, so I think we have a great climate action plan. Take a look at it um, in Cleveland. Um, and, and where you see that it's not enforced, talk to your local Uh, municipal person talk when you know your streets are being laid you want more trees planted you want to compete in green streets that's where your action lies Um, your your voice really matters Um, so that's another thing that I'll say is a good um, thing that we have we have a, a policy around renewable energy although we are not really making those shifts right now again voicing all those things that we have in paper for those to be real is important for us
2: I can maybe just real quick while we're waiting um, on that, chime in on a national level, where I do think that there is a, um, a change and a shift that's coming through um, the youth kind of learning to speak out, speak up, kind of using technology to see all these things. Like before, um, we were not, like for one, we just didn't have a lot of the technology that led to the education, a lot of the, the science that's being able to, the science has been there, but kind of disseminating it, um, kind of that shift, right, from the reframing of the scientists, from like the doomsdayers in the 70s to the beginnings of the Al Gore style fact-based mass education, right? Then we move to the global warming, um, like the remote asteroid headed to earth, kind of a distance far off thing to now where we are here, um, where we're not no longer saving future generations, but the climate crisis is here today. And it doesn't matter how much money you have, you are at the very latest, your kids are gonna be impacted, right? We see the wildfires, the tornadoes, the hurricanes, the droughts, the floods, It does not matter anymore. Um, In the sense that it's there, it does matter in the sense that it's a lot worse in some places and that some places don't have the resources. But we are much more aware of these things now, nowadays, through technology um, and and the fact that we are ever more connected. So I do see that shift um, just in the kind of national and international sense that we can now see the impacts that our actions have, which was not as possible earlier.
3: And i'll I'll just add to that one point that you at that, that point, Kat, that if insurance companies are beginning to make note of this, then we are going to see some change happen. And insurance companies right now are. They are looking at using risk assessment. they're they're you know looking at vulnerability assessments there to flood, I mean, you know, to uh, float their um, investments. So that's a positive shift for us to sort of say, how do we um, make that more stringent and really, um, tighten up some of those loopholes that we'll begin to see. So pay pay close attention to any of these things.
4: Real quickly, uh, as relates to insurance, uh, Cuyahoga County has a really interesting idea where they're trying to develop a what they call a risk calculator to show how better Northeast Ohio is situated from a a climate change standpoint, uh, from a, a, a wildfire, uh, a hurricane. Um, Uh, excessive heat standpoint and try to promote Northeast Ohio as a place for people to live. Now, you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, necessarily benefit off of somebody else's uh, unfortunate situation, but um, this whole idea of of comparing how much it costs to do business and to live in Northeast Ohio from an insurance standpoint versus say, California, Arizona, other places, that's going to become an interesting proposition going forward.
1: Definitely. Well, thank you. Thank you to all of our panelists for being here today. And then I will hand it over to Rekav for our closing.
0: Today at the City Club, we have been enjoying a forum with Peter Kraus, reporter for cleveland.com, Katerina Meyer, the coordinator for Fridays for Future USA, and Divya Sridhar, the manager of climate resiliency and sustainability at Cleveland Neighborhood Progress. As part of our youth forum sponsored by at and with additional support from the Doris C. Michael Ski Trust. Support for City Club Virtual Forums is provided by Bank of America, PMC, and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District. We appreciate your continued support. Additionally, we welcome all the students joining us virtually today. If you enjoyed today's forum, join us virtually November 18th at noon for the second Ute Forum of the 2021-2022 school year. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, panelists. Thank you, everyone. The forum is now adjourned.